Well, let's come together before God in prayer. Let's pray. We thank you that we have the blood-bought privilege this morning to come before you, our Heavenly Father, to speak to you in prayer, uh, to speak the desires upon our hearts and to share with you the needs of our church. We thank you for your loving kindness to us, for your covenant promises, for promising, even pledging yourself to be our God and to make us your people. We thank you that in this ever-changing world where nothing seems to be the same day to day, that you never change, you never change your mind, you never go back on your word, you are ever faithful. And we thank you for that, Heavenly Father. We thank you this morning for the gift of the Spirit given to the church of Jesus Christ. We thank you that the same Spirit who was the constant companion of our Lord Jesus has been given to us as a gift and a down payment of our inheritance. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for your work in our lives to strengthen us, to bring forth fruit in our lives, to conform us to the image of our Savior Jesus Christ. Please continue your work among us as a church and in our lives individually as we live in this world. And Heavenly Father, in this world there is much pain and injustice. We ourselves have experienced uh, what it means to toil, to experience frustration and disappointment and discouragement. And yet in the midst of all of it, we can rejoice and we do rejoice this morning for we know that you are making all things new. And we know that Jesus Christ will judge the world and all things will be made right. Every wrong, every injustice will be taken care of by him. And we thank you that Jesus Christ himself will one day wipe away every tear from our eyes and we will be with him forever. And we rejoice as well in this life for the way that you use hard and challenging things that stretch us and test our faith. We rejoice because we know that you work all things for our deliverance and for our salvation, our conformity to Jesus Christ. We know that in this life, as true followers of Jesus, that we'll face challenges and opposition. And so we, we pray that you would teach us to be courageous for Christ. Rid us of any fear of man. Teach us a proper fear of you, Lord, that would drive away any fear of anyone or anything else. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us to number our days, uh, to redeem the time that you have given to us, to lay down our life in order that we may truly find it in service to you. Teach us to rid ourselves of distractions, things that might be good in and of themselves, but are keeping us from serving you faithfully and fruitfully in this life. 
We pray together uh, for our denomination, for the PCA. We thank you for this branch of your church. And we, uh, we pray for uh, fidelity to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As uh, the denomination continues to discuss important matters and as we anticipate the upcoming General Assembly, we pray that the Spirit would guide the PCA into greater faithfulness and to the truth of your word. We pray for our own church officers represented here at, at, at Trinity, that they would be Christ-like gospel laborers, uh, brothers among brothers who, who serve for the good of all. And Lord, we, we bring before you the, the, the many and various needs of, of our congregation. We pray for physical and health needs, and ask that you would be gracious. We pray for our children and youth, that their hearts would be set on Jesus Christ, and that they would find uh, the answers to life's big questions in your word. We pray for the elderly, and that they would know your work in them, and that they would see you at work through them in the lives of others. Show them, Lord, how you can use them fruitfully in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and encourage them in this way. We pray uh, for those who have gone astray that the one who is the good shepherd would seek after them in his tender love and care and bring them home. Lord, we we pray as well that uh, you would be with those who are weighed down with disappointments and anxieties and various struggles, bear them up, Lord, and be their joy and their satisfaction and their source of strength in the midst of their weakness. We pray uh, this morning, um, and we want to confess to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you And you alone are our portion and cup. We live in a dry and weary land. And we're thirsty. And we thank you that our thirst is satisfied by you. We confess that we we love you because you first loved us. And we ask that you would equip us and strengthen us to serve you in love to the very, very end until we see the one in whom our soul delights. We pray this morning that you would use the the collection that is taken up today to further the work of the gospel and to care for people in need. And and now as we uh, turn to the scriptures once again, your living and active word, Holy Spirit, we ask for help. Help us to understand, but not only give us understanding, we pray that you would enable us to obey. Make us not only hearers of the word, but doers. And all for Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. Well, uh, would you please turn with me uh, once again to 1 Corinthians, this time to chapter 16, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We are reaching uh, the end of our time today in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, at least for now. You'll notice that we're passing over 
uh, chapter 15, because we'll continue to come back to 1 Corinthians 15 around Easter time and work through that chapter uh, bit by bit as we've been doing the last couple of years. Um, but you know, in, in chapter 15, Paul is he's, uh, he's explaining and expounding the reality and the significance of Christ's bodily resurrection. And I think in a lot of ways, uh, chapter 15 would have been a great way to end the letter. <laughs> it ends on the high note of glorying in the resurrection. You know, Where, O oh death, is your sting? But there's another chapter. And in this closing chapter, Paul turns to matters that we might consider much more uh, mundane, uh, much more ordinary. And when we pause to think about that, I actually think that's a helpful way to end. Because we don't yet live fully in, in the glories that are to come. We, we live in the, the here and now, the mundane and the ordinary. And, and we need to see and come to terms with how the glory of what awaits us ought to affect how we live in the day-to-day realities of life in a local church. And so uh, we're going to look at chapter 16 today. And we're really thinking here about living life faithfully as a Christian in the real world, in the context of a local church. That's the framework for this chapter that I think we need to have to appreciate it fully. And this morning, we're going we're gonna to look at four themes, okay? The first theme is found in verses 1 through 4. We're going to think about money and the church of God. Money in the church of God. The second theme is found in verses 5 through 9, mission and the plan of God. Paul shares some of his his travel plans. Uh, He tells them a bit about what God is doing in Ephesus. Uh, But there are notes uh, infused in the text of divine sovereignty. Something that we don't want to miss as we look at those verses. Uh, The third theme is in verses 10 through 18. Ministry and the servants of God. He, he gives the, the Corinthians a list of leaders uh, and gospel servants uh, whom he commends. And we need to think about what he commends, why he commends these particular individuals so that we might learn to value similar leaders as the Lord provides them. And then what we'll do is we'll, we'll come back to verses 13 and 14 And then look at verses 19 and 24 together to think about maturity and the family of God. What does it look like to live the Christian life and grow in maturity in the context of the household of God, in the context of the local church? So those are our four things, four themes, money in the church of God, mission in the plan of God, ministry in the servants of God, and maturity and the family of God. Be on the lookout for those themes. But let's go ahead and read together now all of chapter 16 and hear the word of the Lord. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive... I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. 
I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective ministry has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him, Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our other brother, Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but as we have made our way through this letter together, um, I I have felt very often that God's word moves from mere instruction to meddling. I can't tell you how many times before I've stood up to preach from 1 Corinthians, I've, I've felt some degree of, of trembling knowing that God's word has some challenging and some punchy things to say to us. But, uh, you know, here we are. We've, we've made it to chapter 16, and you haven't fired me yet. So uh, how much trouble can I really get in in 24 verses? Turns out a great deal, I think. <laughs> So let's go ahead and take a look at these four themes together and think, first of all, about money and the church of God in verses 1 through 4. See that Paul says, now concerning the collection for the saints. And in verse 3, he, he uh, clarifies that this is concerning a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. And we know something about what those believers in Jerusalem were experiencing in the book of Acts. Uh, In chapter 11, uh, there's a prophet by the name of Agabus in Antioch who prophesied that a famine would would strike the land. And so the believers in Antioch organized a collection. 
They sent it to Judea, to the, the believers in Jerusalem by the hands of Barnabas and Paul. And from that point, it became Paul's custom in all of the churches to continue that pattern. And so he tells us here in, in verse 1 that he gave the same instructions to the churches of Galatia. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8 tells us that the churches in Macedonia participated in this same effort. Philippians 4 17 through 18 tells us that churches in Macedonia participated you know, from the get-go, from the start, not only sending relief to the saints in Jerusalem, but also providing aid to the Apostle Paul uh, in his gospel ministry. And as we reflect on these words, I, wanna, I want us to notice three things from these four verses about giving in the New Testament church. Okay? Three things about giving in the New Testament church. First, we see that it was a pattern across congregations. You see that it was a pattern across congregations. It was a pattern for the Corinthians and the Galatians and the Macedonians. It was a pattern in Antioch. And the churches are sharing and bearing one another's burdens. These churches are together sending relief to the believers in Jerusalem. And from that, I think we can learn that the churches of the New Testament, we can say this at the very least, that the churches of the New Testament were not radically independent congregations. They shared a common mission, and they were participating together in relief, uh, supporting one another under a common leadership and governance structure. You see Paul here issuing specific direction about the leaders that the Corinthians would appoint to, uh, to deliver their gift, whether it would go singly or whether he would accompany them. He, he's exercising real authority here across congregations. You see something of that also exercised in a passage like Acts 15, where the apostles and the elders uh, gather together to issue a decree for the whole church. So here is, we might say, biblical Presbyterianism of the New Testament sort. The strong, helping the weak, churches mutually connected in love and in common mission together under recognized leadership. Okay, so there's this pattern, and it is normative for all of the churches across the board. A second thing to notice in these verses is that giving is planned. Giving is planned. Look at verse 2. Uh, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up so that there will be no collecting when I come. There's that language at the start there. The first day of the week, right? Sunday, when, when the church gathered together. Paul mentions it here, you know, it's just sort of in passing without the need for any further explanation because this was the universal practice of the church to gather together on the first day of the week for corporate assembly, for worship, for listening to apostolic teaching, for the breaking of bread, for fellowship and, and prayers. And why? Why is that the case? Well, because it's the day of Christ's resurrection. It is the day of 
uh, new creation. It is the day when the salvation of God's people has been brought to light. And in the New Testament, it is called the Lord's Day. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. The day of assembly to remember and proclaim and rest and, and foretaste the fellowship of God's people together and God's people with their God. Fellowship that will be enjoyed for all eternity. So it's just a small, small detail here, I think easily passed over, but it, it's a rem, it is a reminder that Sunday, the first day of the week, is the day for Christian assembly, for worship. It's the day when Christians are to, to give for the cause of the gospel and the support of the saints and the relief of the poor. This was the pattern in all of the churches. Now notice what he says as well, though, in, in verse 2. He, uh, store it up, he says, so there will be no collecting when I come. Uh, that, that language of storing it up is closely connected with the language of a treasury. Uh, there was a treasury like this in the temple of Jerusalem. So I, really, I think what Paul is saying is, uh, Corinthians, I, I want you to give to your local church. The local church is to store it up in some fashion so that when I come, I don't have to take up an additional collection. And so Paul is saying believers are to plan. They're to plan to give regularly on the Lord's day and the church as a whole is to plan to store it up so that it can be administered appropriately. This was the pattern. The norm across the churches, giving is planned and regular for the cause of the gospel and for the relief of the poor. The third thing I think we can take away from these uh, first set of verses is uh, giving is to be proportional. Giving is to be proportional. You see that in verse 2. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Now, you know, a lot, uh, Christians talk a lot about tithing still today. Uh, you hear the language of tithes and offerings, and that's, that's fine. But I hope we understand that tithing is really an Old Testament idea. It, it's tied to the ceremonial law. And if you insist on Old Testament tithing, then it's probably good for you to know that three tithes were paid in, in the Old Testament. There was a tithe to the Levites, uh, a tithe for the temple, and a tithe for the poor. And it was estimated that these three tithes together amounted to something like 23%. Okay. Um, I don't see anybody jumping up and saying, okay, let's, let's, let's do 23%. But here's the thing. Here's what I want to say, suggest to you this morning, that the New Testament principle for giving in the church is even more radical. The New Testament principle for giving is even more radical than that. I told you I was going to get in trouble today, so let's just get it over with. Um, instead of uh, the principle of prescribed tithing, Christians were encouraged to give generously. And in Scripture, generously means sacrificially. If you need examples of that, you can turn to a passage like Acts chapter 4, where believers are liquidating assets in order to provide for the needs of the church. Or you can turn to a passage like 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, where Paul is, is commending the Macedonians for their giving even beyond their means. And 
it's worth pausing there for a minute because Paul really zeroes in on the New Testament principle for giving. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, first, consider, consider Christ, that though he was rich, for our sake became poor, that by his poverty we may become rich. See what he's saying? He's saying, look at Jesus and what he has done for us, and it, that will lead you to say and to sing, were the whole realm of nature mine. That were a thing far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You see, we give not only our resources, we give our very selves, holding nothing back from him who gave his all for us. And so this is the principle, sacrificial generosity. That, my friends, is New Testament giving. And so we're not asking so much, you know, what's the minimum percentage that I must tithe so I can check off the box? No, we're asking, how may I give in such a way that it is really reflected um, my devotion to Jesus Christ who gave his all for my poor sake. And so there's the first theme, giving and the church of God. Let's go to the second one, uh, which is mission and the plan of God in verses five through nine. And there's, there's a wonderful balance that Paul strikes here that I wanna make sure we recognize. On the one hand, here's Paul commanding giving. The church needs resources. There's gospel work that needs to be done. There's mercy ministry that needs to be done. And it's not going to get done unless giving takes place. That's one part of this. But then on the other, in the next set of verses, we see as well that it's also Paul's conviction, without hesitation, that the work of the church is God's work that the work of the church is in the hands of the sovereign Lord. And that means that there's no amount of leverage that we could ever apply to make the church grow or cause, you know, one soul to move an inch away from hell and an inch closer to heaven because salvation belongs to the Lord. And maintaining this balance, I think, is crucial for us. So take a look at verses 5 through 9. And we get basically Paul's travel plans. He's saying to them, I'm planning to come see you. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm going to Macedonia. If I can, I'd, I'd love to come and spend the winter with you. I don't want to just stop in for a brief visit, pop in for a day or two, and then head off. I want to come and spend some quality time with you, he says to them. And then he tells them about a, a bit about what he's doing. Uh, I'm in Ephesus as I write this. I'm going to stay till Pentecost because... Verse 9, a wide door for effective work has been opened to me. And here we get a, a glimpse into Paul's travel plans. And as we read over that summary of his intentions, please be careful to notice the acknowledgments of the sovereignty of God. Uh, the Lord is king, even over Paul's missionary plans. So verse 7, I hope to spend some time to you if the Lord permits Verse 9, a wide door for effective ministry has been opened for me, and there are many adversaries. You see, Paul didn't open the door. The Ephesians didn't open the door. In fact, there was a lot of opposition to him in Ephesus trying to slam the door in Paul's face. But God 
has opened the door wide for effective ministry. Okay, so what's the, what's the lesson we can take away from Paul's travel plans? Well, to remind us that the work of the church in making disciples of Jesus Christ really is in God's hands. Paul labors. He works hard. He strives, but he knows it all depends on if the Lord permits, if the Lord opens a door for effective ministry for him. And so, my friends, we must not think in terms of the, you know, the usual metrics that are commonly uh, used to measure success. Like, you know, those, those three Bs of, of bucks, bodies, and buildings. How much money does the church have? How big is the, the campus or the church building? Uh, how many people go to your church? Those are the standard metrics of success today. But we need to recognize that we need to toss those out. I'm not saying they're not important in some respect, but those kind of things you understand are not the guarantee of success in the mission of God. It is only if God permits. It's only ever if a door of effective work is opened. God must do it. God must add to the church those who are being saved. He must open the door. And Please do not hear an invitation to passivity. It's the exact opposite. This ought to engage us in the work of the Lord and drive us to our knees to plead with the Lord to open a door for effective ministry here in Johnstown and around the world. That's theme number two. Let's go to the third theme here. So money in the church of God, mission in the plan of God, And then thirdly, ministry and the servants of God. Looking at verses 10 through 18. And just keep in mind how Paul started this letter. Do you remember the issue that he had to deal with in the opening chapters? He was trying to help the Corinthians get past their arrogant, prideful, boastful, divisive spirit. Remember, some of them were saying, I follow Paul, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Paulus, I follow... Jesus, they were, you know, uh, they, they were thinking that their party leader gave credence to their schismatic group. And that's how they were thinking about leadership. Well, here Paul offers, I think, a very different way of thinking about church leaders and a very different model for leadership in the church. He commends leaders to them but for very different reasons. Not because they were impressive or dynamic or because they had big, powerful personalities. Not because of the force of their rhetoric or their gift of oratory. He commends them. Well, take a look at it. The leaders, Paul urges the Corinthians to care for, to help, to honor, to submit themselves to, to recognize our men like Timothy. Men like Timothy, verse 10. Help him. Verse 11, don't despise him. Don't look down on Timothy because he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Or men like Apollos in verse 12, whom he describes as our brother. The Corinthians themselves are described in the very same terms in verse 15. So Apollos is a brother among brothers, we might say. And Paul says these leaders devote themselves to the service of the saints. They are fellow workers 
and laborers. See, they're, they're not placed before the Corinthians here uh, for their power or brilliance or charismatic personalities. They're singled out because they are servants, because they are servants of all, and they are laborers, Paul says. That word's really important. Uh, it's the same word that the disciples use, for example, in Luke chapter 5, uh, verse 5, after Jesus says, you throw your nets on the other side, and they look at Jesus with incredulity and frustration. What do you mean? We've been at this all night. We've been working hard. We've been laboring all night and caught nothing. That's the word. They've been laboring at their nets. See, it's not, it's not a glamorous thing. It, it comes, this kind of labor, it comes without prestige. They're just laborers not known for their power or their brilliance. Uh, he commends the household of Stephanus in verses 15 and 16. Men like uh, Stephanus and uh, Fortunatus and Achaicus who are to receive the recognition of the church Again, not because they're great in worldly terms, but because they're lowly. Do you see that? Because they're lowly. Because they're servants of the saints. Remember the teaching of Jesus. Whoever wishes to be first must be least of all and the servant of all. Or in Mark chapter 9, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Now when you pause and you think about what Paul is saying here, these are not at all the qualities of leadership that our world uh, emphasizes. These are not the things we're taught to look for. This isn't how we're taught to identify leaders and, and the sort of people to follow. I think an example of this, it's not anything new. Remember, uh, remember the prophet Samuel when he went to, uh, to Jesse's farm to anoint the next king of Israel. And the firstborn Eliab comes before, is paraded before Samuel. And Samuel thinks, this guy is the real deal. It must be him. Just take a look at him. He's a man of stature. And the Lord says to Samuel, nope, it's, it's not him. Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature. For I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then you remember the other brothers are prayed before Samuel. And David's not even there for consideration. You know, David is left out in the fields. Why would he even be an option? He's nothing more than a lowly shepherd. And yet he's called, and when he's called, the Lord says to Samuel, Arise, anoint him, for it is he. My friends, this is how God works. Not with the great and impressive, not the sophisticated and the powerful, but the servant of all and the least of these. And Paul is saying along these lines, give recognition to such. Follow these kind of men. Subject yourselves to them and help them on their way. I think the ultimate reason for that, why is it that way in the household of God? Why are these the leaders that the Lord wants to give to the church and call the church to follow? It's simply this, because this is what Jesus is like. Remember what Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve 
and to give my life as a ransom for many. This is God's way. And my friends, this is the kind of leadership that we need. This is is God's definition of a leader. True greatness. Here it is. The servant of all, a faithful laborer, a brother among brothers, and a diligent workman. And so let's remember this when it comes to the kind of leaders the church needs. We, we, we're on the lookout not so much for personality or pedigree or even mere giftedness. We're asking the question, are they servants? Do they labor in the work of the gospel to build people up or to put these kinds of men at their ease and recognize and help them, Paul says. And and while we're at it, if I can just tack this on before we go to our fourth and final theme, please pray. Pray for your pastors and church officers. Pray for other pastors and church officers. They need your prayers. Pray that that God would would deliver us from, from the allure of the praise of men and from counterfeit paradigms of leadership, which are sadly uh, found throughout the church today. Pray that God would make us Jesus-like servants of all, fellow workers, brothers among brothers, laboring for your good. Pray that God would bless the church with servant-hearted men who labor in this way. Okay, so that's theme number three. Money in the church of God, mission in the plan of God, uh, ministry in the servants of God, and then finally and fourthly, um, Well, let's take a look at maturity and the family of God. First, uh, have a look at verses 13 and 14, and then we'll go to 19 and 20 through 24. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, be strong, act like men, and let all that you do be done in love. Okay, five commands. Brothers and sisters, I'm convinced that they are especially directed at men in the church. And so four of these exhortations are really orbiting around a central exhortation, the third one, act like men. And the other surrounding exhortations are filling out what acting like a man in the household of God will look like. In the Greek, what's translated act like men is a single word. It was a well-known command during that time for men to fulfill the role of men. And these surrounding exhortations then are filling out for us what that means. See, in the midst of all of the problems and controversy at Corinth, Paul's calling the men, if I can put it this way, to grow up. Or in our own language, he's saying it's time to man up. Uh, He's calling them to own the responsibility of fulfilling their God-given vocation as men within the household of God. And he tells them, first of all, that acting like men will mean being watchful. Be on guard. Be alert. You know, very often in the New Testament, this sort of command is uh, directly applied to the, the elders of a church. And that makes sense, since they're called to be under shepherds. What do shepherds do? But look after the care of the flock, in this case, the flock of God. Paul says to uh, the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, look, fierce wolves are going to come in 
and seek to ravage the sheep. And so Paul commanded the elders there to be on the lookout, to be on guard. It's the very same idea, same word in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, where Peter urges, Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But I think, I think it's worth noting this in passing, that the call to be watchful, directed particularly to men, is not something that just pops up in the New Testament. It's actually something that goes all of the way back. And when I, mean, when I say all the way back, I mean all the way back. You've got to go back to Genesis, to the creation account, to see the origins of this. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, God gave Adam in particular a very specific and unique responsibility to, uh, to, uh, to, to, to keep the garden uh, and to, to guard it, we might even say. The language is translated in our ESV as work and keep. Now, that second word, to keep, should almost definitely be more accurately translated as guard, to guard the garden. The only other place that these two words occur alongside of each other elsewhere in the Old Testament is in describing the role of the priest within sacred space. In the tabernacle or the temple, the priests were charged to protect, to guard, uh, to be on the watch from things that would be our unclean coming into uh, sacred space, into the holy space, the temple of the Lord. And so this was Adam's charge in the garden. As a man, he was to be watchful and guard sacred space, God's people. And so we see from the very beginning, this is indeed a unique charge given to men to be watchful and be on guard. Now, of course, Adam in his Context, he failed in this charge. He was failing the moment that the serpent began speaking to the woman and he stood by watching passively as it all went down. He failed to guard the garden temple, the place where God dwelled in the midst of his people. And it's, I think, really in this light that we should understand and better appreciate what Jesus is doing during his earthly ministry when he went into the temple and drove out with a whip those who were defiling sacred space. As a man, Jesus is acting as the second Adam, zealously keeping and protecting the things that belong to the Lord. And in light of all of this, I think we need to recognize that this is a, is in some sense a uniquely male responsibility to be watchful and to protect what is precious and dear in God's sight. And then he says, stand firm in the faith. Notice the faith, definite article, referring to the body of apostolic doctrine once for all delivered to the saints. He wants them to be immovably fixed on the rock of gospel truth. Men were to care about doctrine and orthodoxy. It's true for women too. But again, I think Paul in this context is speaking directly to the men. Be watchful, stand firm. And and third, be strong. Another term here directed at men. Again, none of this is to say that women can't be watchful or stand firm or strong in the Lord in the face of opposition. They can and they should. 
in their own way, but Paul is singling out the men here in these verses, and he's saying, act like men, and here's what it looks like. And we can't miss on the other side in verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. I, I, don't, I hope we don't have to say this, but love is not a feminine attribute. It is an attribute of God that all Christian men and women are called to. So Paul is saying, men, let love animate your every action. Make it, make it the characteristic mark of everything you do and say. This is how the world will know, remember the words of Jesus, how the world will know that you belong to him. Not by how much you know, not by how well you can argue for the faith, as important as that might be, not how well you can um, uh, use your gifts in the context of the local church, but by your love for the the family of God, for the brethren, that is the distinguishing mark of men and women who follow Jesus. You see, that note of love sounds again if we jump ahead from verses 13 and 14 to verses 19 through 24. If you look there, he says, the churches of Asia send greetings. Aquila and Prisca together with the church in their house send greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, whatever the Presbyterians of Corinth were like, they were not the frozen chosen, were they? <laughs> there was to be affection, love expressed in culturally appropriate ways. You see the same note in verse 24 from Paul himself. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. There it is. Love again. Paul cared deeply for the Corinthians. And when we reflect on this, we have to say that this is a basic, normal, even required part of the Christian life. Love for one another. See, when people look at the church, this is what they should see. Christians loving each other. It's worth asking the question, when people see us together, what do they see? I think they see love, and I pray increasingly so. Notice, notice though, that this requirement of the Christian life, you can't escape this. It is a group project, isn't it? This is something that you cannot do on your own, off by yourself. In order to fulfill this command to love one another, you have to be a part of a body of believers. You can't use the church as an occasional provider of religious goods and services and expect to be growing in Christian maturity and faithfulness to Jesus. No, Paul's reminding us here, the church is the place, and these are the people among whom you are called to live and to love. See, love is so important, and it requires Christian community. You cannot love like a Christian apart from the church. In fact, in, in, verses, uh, in verse 22, Paul writes here, we might call a little uh, postscript. He takes the, the pen from his amanuensis to, to write these last few lines himself. And he offers here a word of warning in verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed, our Lord come. 
saying he's coming. Be warned that a loveless heart faces the judgment of God. That's what Paul is saying. You cannot say that you love Jesus and hate your brother or have no love for your brother. The truth isn't in you and you're lying to yourself. You're deceiving yourself and thinking that way. And I think it's also, I think it's beautiful to notice, it's fitting to notice that the very last words with which this letter concludes are the same words with which Paul began this letter. Remember that at the beginning, Paul said to the Corinthians, called to be saints, sanctified in Christ Jesus. And now he concludes, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Because, dear brothers and sisters, if we're going to learn anything from 1 Corinthians, it is at least this, that apart from Jesus Christ, we can do nothing. We can't give sacrificially to the work of the church without understanding that Jesus Christ is calling to himself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. We, we can't be on a mission together unless we understand that it is in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ, God is fulfilling his plan and his purposes for the entire world. Uh, we, we can't be servant-hearted leaders in the church of Christ unless we have before us, first of all, the paradigm of the suffering servant. And we, we, can't, uh, we can't be maturing and growing by standing firm in the faith, being strong, acting like men, doing all things in love, unless we, first of all, have come to terms with how we are loved in Christ Jesus. We do this, dear friends, by clinging and resting on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can only do it in Christ Jesus. And so as we come to the end of this letter, let me me plead with you to make certain this one basic fundamental issue. Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Because he is everything that you and I need. He's everything we need as a church. So get Christ. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together, uh, for these uh, several months in 1 Corinthians. And we pray that our time together in your word would not at all be in vain, but that you would bring forth fruit in our lives that would resound to your glory, transform our minds and conform our lives to the truths of the gospel that we have studied together. Remind us and assure us day after day that by faith we are in Christ Jesus and in him we have everything we need to be on mission together. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.